So earlier this week, Alexandra Burchett, I have to get used to saying that, uh, emailed me about the tablecloth her and Nan had been working on for our Advent table. They tried several different techniques and iterations, including, I think at one point, uh, putting it on a rusty shed roof, um, that some of which worked and some haven't. And I think right now it's, it's uh, dyed with um, some old wine, um, which there, there was like a, I guess she pressed it this morning and it was very aromatic. It was kind of like an X2, it's only 9 a.m. sort of thing. Um, but I got an email from Alex and she asked if it'd be appropriate for this, if, if this tablecloth became kind of a work in progress throughout Advent. Um, in her words, I hope I'm not embarrassing you by, by quoting you, but you said, Jesus has sparked a little adventure option with me, so I'd like to say yes. I'll bring the cloth back every week with its new transformation. An Advent work in progress, an Advent adventure. So that's what we're doing together. Thanks, Alex. Um, in this passing comment, I think, you, I think you nailed two primary postures for our coming season together. Journeying with Jesus and saying yes to God in that adventure. Perhaps there's no better way to sum up what's going on as we gather around this table now adorned with this wreath and these elements, these little lights that remind us of hope, peace, joy, and love, that remind us of, of, of the way the gospel is a gospel. It's good news of hope, joy, peace, and love. As we gather around the bread and the cup, and we take and we eat in remembrance of the word that became flesh, we journey with Jesus as we rehearse these things, as we rehearse waiting for God's arrival, his advent into this world to save all of creation. And we say yes, we say yes to his mission as we join in his renewal of all things by his son in his spirit. Unless all this sounds too hypothetical, too out there, too esoteric, if God becoming human, become, you know, I don't, like in some ways it's so hypothetical, but it's also so earthly, right? God became human. He, he entered into history, into time, and into space. Like, if you have a hard time thinking, like, realize that those major scenes that we all see in yards as we drive by or we have in our home, those crash scenes, that means that the God-man wore diapers, <laughs> that, that God nursed at his mother's breast. That, if that's not concrete enough, the church uh, of Jesus is, is predicated around the, the telling of this good news, the, the, the stitching together of these gospel stories. In half of those gospel stories that we have in our Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, half of them start, have their beginning with family trees. What could be more earthly and tangible than family trees? Matthew, in particular, gives us a list of names and lives and stories, generations upon generations. Each name is, is kind, of like, kind of like a table of contents listing, right? Like we when you read the Gospels, you open them up and you see a genealogy, there's like 
so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so, and you just kind of breeze through them and skip over to get to the action. But each of those is, is, is kind of shorthand for everything else in that life and in that story and in the web and network that that life affected in God's story. In Matthew's uh, gospel, it starts out by saying, by describing Jesus as son of David, son of Abraham. Th these off the, off the top are really important because Jesus being related to David, being able to trace his line back to David means that Jesus is king. Jesus being able to trace his line back to Abraham means that Jesus is an heir to God's promise to bless a particular people in order to bless the whole world. That's how God starts. God starts small and then creates exponential agents of reconciliation into this world to affect and to enact God's renewal through a family. Whereas Luke's gospel traces Jesus' family tree all the way back to Adam, and that's important too, back to, back to all of our roots, Adam the first bearer of God's image, but also the first sinner, we all bear that family resemblance to Adam. Matthew wants to emphasize how God has been on the move in his people. So we scan through the list. There are some major names, right? Like there's Abraham and there's David. Imagine like each of these folks are like, like if you are um, installed into the NFL Hall of Fame, they give you a gold blazer. I would love to be involved in a club that would give you a blazer that you could just wear and people would know like that guy is special in that particular way. M maybe that's next year for Oak Church we'll get blazers yeah. for everyone. <laughs> but that's kind of, the, these are Hall of Fame names. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how God's known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Along with David, these are like the main players of the Jewish scriptures. They're kind of a big deal. But then our Bible knowledge starts to get tested a little more as we go along. We start to get into these lesser names, these characters that we kind of remember, some which we kind of don't remember. Oftentimes we like make these grand Bible reading resolutions in the new year and we kind of start to drift off around like late January, February, and that's where all these names happen, you know? like kind of in February and March, like that's, that's where these names are, these kind of mid-range Bible names. Take, for instance, Judah, which is right after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Judah and his brothers, they're, they're those 11 rascals who managed to sell one of their brothers into slavery in Egypt. Their brother, of course, being our favorite Technicolor dream coat wearing Joseph, right? They remember these stories. And then, after Joseph, or after, after Judah, we get our first female name listed in this whole genealogy. We get the name Tamar. Tamar probably doesn't mean a whole lot to most of us. We don't remember that story because it, it's a hard story to tell. And it's one I'm going to try to tell this morning. You see, we get this list of names, and there's 47 names, and five, only five of which are women. Each of these stories represents some bit of adventure, some determination to say yes to God, despite their vulnerability, their imperfection of their circumstances and the fragility of their lives. For this season of Advent, 
I want us to focus on these five stories of these women, Tamar and Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Jesus' mother, Mary. Some of these we might be more or less familiar with, but as we, uh, I think our goal is together to discern in, in this God-breathed, useful word how God's spirit might be equipping us to do what is good. That's, that's 2 Timothy 3.16. That, that the scriptures God breathed and, and, and so, so are the scriptures that it's alluding to. Now we might do all of that as we wait in joyful hope for the coming of Jesus. So I'm going to invite Alex to come up and read from Genesis 38. And this is a little bit of Tamar's story. Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Stay as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. He thought Shelah would die like his brothers had, so Tamar went and lived in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. Then, after a period of mourning, he and his neighbor Hira, the Adulamite, went to Timnah to those who were um, cheering his sheep. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is now on his way up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So Tamar took off the clothing she wore as a widow, covered herself with a veil, put on makeup, and sat down at the entrance of Inaim on the road to Timnah, since she realized that although Shela had already grown up, she hadn't been given to him as a wife. Judah saw her and thought she was a prostitute because she had covered her face. He turned to her bedside. He turned to her beside the road and said, let me sleep with you, because he didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me for sleeping with you? He said, I will give you a kid goat for my flock. She said, only if you give me some deposit, a security to guarantee that you will send it. He said, what kind of deposit should I give you? She said, your seal, its cord, and the staff in your hand. He gave these to her, slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. Then she got up, left, and took off her veil, dressing once again in the clothing she wore as a widow. Judah sent the kid goat with his neighbor, the Adulamite, so that he could take back the deposits from the woman, but he couldn't find her. He asked the locals of that place, where's the consecrated worker who was at Inaim on the road? But they said, there is no consecrated worker here. So he went back to Judah and said, I couldn't find her. The locals even said, there's no holy woman here. Judah said, let her keep everything so we aren't laughed at. Um, I did send the kid goat, but couldn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has become a prostitute and is now pregnant because of it. Judah said, bring her out so she may be burned. When she was brought out, she sent this message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things. See if you recognize whose seal, cord, and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I am because I didn't allow her to marry my son, Shelah. Judah never knew her intimately again. Whoa. So first off, we're given Tamar's story smack dab in the middle of Joseph's capture and exile. You see, Joseph's brothers, and you can, you can do this on your own time. You can backtrack through Genesis. Joseph and his, uh, 
Joseph's brothers have decided on Judah's initiative that for how bad it was to kidnap their brother, it'd be just a bridge too far to kill him out of their jealousy. They might as well keep their consciences clean and make a few bucks while they were at it, so they decided to sell him down the river into Egyptian slavery. This is like classic flannel graph kind of story with Jesus kind of behind the whole thing, right? There's a man called by God, He's received unfavorably by his brothers. He's persecuted unfairly, and he's stripped bare, and his father mourns for him. Like the, This is a Jesus story uh, that we're reading. And all of this is happening within God's family. It's not supposed to be this complicated. There's, these are supposed to be the good guys, right? The guys in on God's promises, that they know exactly what God's trying to do to make matters worse than in the story we're given an interruption it's an aside it's about what's happening in-house in the meantime while Joseph goes away even while betrayal and sin infiltrates God's family it seems his purpose is still moving forward his family is still growing Judah moves away maybe he's got a riddled conscience right I mean, he just sold his brother into slavery. And Judah moves away to start his own family. He had three sons. He had Ur, Onan, and Shelah. In this culture, it was so important to have sons. That's how the, the lineage continued. There are very precise structures and practices in place to, to make sure that your family continues. If someone died, like, for instance, the immoral... The immoral um, first son and husband of Tamar, Ur, he was the first guy, he dies. There's a system in place that it was the job of his brother to step up, to marry his wife, raise his kids, and inherit his share. The story must move forward. The family must continue. Especially this story, especially this family for whom God was working to bless and save the world. But the brother, the, the, the middle brother, just doesn't get it or doesn't want to get it. Onan seems to have inherited his father's selfishness and, and spite because he refuses to get Tamar pregnant. He sleeps with her but will not get her pregnant. So Onan also dies, and there's one next last hope, that youngest brother, Shelah. And at this point, Judah's either scheming or spiteful, or maybe he's just completely exhausted from losing sons over and over. But then we find out that, that he holds off her from marrying Shelah. Like that, that's the next twist in the story. Then we find out that Judah's own wife dies. So hang in there. This is a really strange family. Tamar, she was a champ for marrying into this family. Like, this is, you know, on holiday weekend when you spend time with in-laws, like, it's good to know. Like, Tamar understands, right? Take from all this, though, it can be really confusing. Take from all this, so the fact that the family is looking more and more like a dead end at this point, Right? She no longer has her first husband. She no longer has her second husband. And she no longer has her assumed third husband. There's, her time is running out. 
uh, on producing a child, and it looks like the story is about over. You know how during an election or during football games, there's like an in-game percentage that one side's going to win. It starts out at 50%, and it goes like this, depending on events that happen. Like at this point, there's like a 99% chance that the genealogy of Matthew ends at like verse three, right? And probably the rest of Matthew ends at verse three. Like I imagine, like this is like Marty McFly and Back to the Future, like frantically checking his Polaroid in his pocket, and like events are happening, and like his parents are disappearing because he's seeing their relationship dissolve in front of them. It's so fragile and it's tottering in real time. Like that's kind of what what's happening here for Tamar. And then the adventure starts. Tamar is sure of a few things right here. She's desperately positive that the adventure must continue, that the lineage must go on, that God's plan to heal creation will not be deterred by Ur or by Onan's death or by Shelah's youth or by Judah's scheming. God's mission will not be derailed by Judah's unfaithfulness or even his sorrow. She knows another thing for sure. She knows that Judah is the sort of guy who could be tempted pretty easily. The kind of guy who, while he's in mourning for his wife, rather than taking that mourning before the Lord as an offering, he'd take it to a temple prostitute. That's what's happening here. That language for this Bible translation about like a holy woman and stuff, that's like a cultic temple prostitute. And so it's very euphemistic there. <laughs> but that's the kind of guy Judah was, and she knew it. Rather than drawing near to the Lord in a time of uncertainty and sadness, he'd worship foreign gods, and he'd numb himself with sensuality. He'd numb himself with false intimacy. When she decides to take matters into her own hands, she's kind of enacting an emergency clause that the family line could continue through her relationship with her father-in-law. That's a thing. That's a real thing. She knew that this would have to happen for this to go down. And finally, she knew that all this might be the death of her if it went wrong, or even if it went right. That tricking Judah in this way by playing the prostitute in an ancient Near Eastern patriarchal society usually ended up with her under a pile of rocks or thrown off of a cliff or burned at the stake. But mostly, she knew that God had a plan, and it was worth her selling everything out in order to join in on that plan. That's what Tamar knew. So incognito, she approaches Judah, and she secures a down payment from him. His seal, his cord, his staff. This is the ancient equivalent to like his driver's license, his social security card, and like his Apple ID, right? Like these are things that he would not give to someone. She holds on to these things as protection because several months later when she becomes pregnant and the only possible explanation is that she's a prostitute or that she's unfaithful, she'll have exhibit A, exhibit B, and exhibit C all pointing back to Judah. This was a risky plan. This was like a Hail Mary that she's doing right here, so to speak. She had to do something. She couldn't sit back and idly watch. She couldn't watch the salvation of the world depended on it. 
So she, in a weird and far from imperfect way, given all the complexities of her life and her lot, she said yes to God. <laughs> a little side note, I think it's really worth pointing out that stories like Tamar's are really good for us to read. They teach us how to read the Bible well, I think. They help, they help us to graduate from merely reading the Bible as this like string of hero stories that we should imitate, that we should revere. And instead, it, it teaches us, it trains us repeatedly to see God as the hero of the story. A God who has graciously brought us into his story, his adventure. Who repeatedly extends an invitation for us to join in him. For us to say yes. We don't read the Bible for heroes to admire because none of these heroes stacks up to the protagonist who's making all things new. That's what the story of the Bible is about. But we also don't shy away from so-called villains. <laughs> Jesus' family tree asks us to reimagine the ways that God, in God's providence, works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. That's Romans 8.28 stuff right there. How God has stitched together this unabashed patchwork of family drama featuring imperfect persons in unsavory situations. <laughs> like that's, that's the other, that's the subplot of the Bible right there. This drives us nuts. This bothers our modern sensibilities. I mean, look at the news, even local news, and see how painful and how complicated it is to try to figure out how to tell our own stories when some of our streets and our residence halls are named after people who held slaves. <laughs> I mean, go to Duke Chapel, and in the entrance of Duke Chapel, one side you have Robert E. Lee, Robert e. Lee standing next to Thomas Jefferson, and, then, and that's standing across from Martin Luther and John Wycliffe, right? Like, very complicated stories with so much baggage and so much good and so much bad. For many this Thanksgiving holiday, you, you had the discomfort and threat as you sat across from the table of someone whose vote drastically represented a drastically different and maybe, in your opinion, a harmful way of visioning the future of America. But somehow, Jesus' family tree is courageous. The telling of this family tree is courageous in its willingness to remember and its willingness to be the right amount of embarrassed and the right amount of proud and at the redemption wrought in and through these lives. That's what we're given. Despite how embarrassing you might find this story, Tamar's name keeps showing up. <laughs> it shows up in a blessing at at Boaz and Ruth's marriage, the elders say, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. Can you imagine that? Like, what a blessing to give someone on their, on their wedding day. Like, I'm going to tie you directly to this, like, crazy Bible story. Or then it shows up again, and here's another bit of trivia. trivia. Both King David and his son Absalom named their daughters Tamar in tribute of this woman. It seems to, to, that, that they understand how her name and her story project kind of hope 
and how, how using the, that name speaks of redemption and celebration of Tamar's place in God's adventure. Because for all the sin and hurt caused by these folks, even the best of them like David, without these stories, I don't think we'd have much precedent for, for how we could possibly measure up and be included in what God's doing. It'd be way too easy that God only uses like smart, perfect, good-looking, disciplined people in his purposes, and that has never been the case. You you're, find a different version of the Bible if that's the Bible that you're reading, right? God uses crazy, weird, sinful, messed-up people to achieve his purposes. So then Judah finally has his eyes open, open to what really happened. So thankfully he, he calls off the lynch mob and he says, she's more righteous than I am because I didn't allow her to marry my son Shelah. Beyond sadness in that admission, that admission that she's more righteous than I am, I think there's also a little bit of hope in there. For the first time, Judah seems like he's actually seeing himself as he really is. Tamar has become a parable of the kingdom of God who holds up a mirror to Judah in ways that show him how selfish, how stubborn, how unfaithful and forgetful, how downright sickening and sinful he's been. I think this is what Martin Luther meant when he talked about an alien righteousness. When we're confronted with a righteousness outside of ourselves, we see ourselves as we really are. And then we have a choice. We have, we have a choice to despair, or we have a choice to be rescued. We can be swamped by this righteousness that comes upon us in ways that overwhelms us or in a way that penetrates us, that heals us, that, that rehabilitates us. This is the way in which Tamar witnesses to the coming of her great, 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 great grandpa, or grandson, I'm sorry, Jesus. This one who would open our eyes, who would replace our righteousness with his, who would replace even our, our best visions of, of how God would work with the concrete reality of who he is, his body broken and his blood poured out for us. The one who would disarm our violence. Jesus, who would bring about hope and possibility where our sin once shut down the future. The sinking sand which we built our righteousness on gets subverted and we're rebuilt on this firm, surprising foundation of Christ. And then there's another twist because and then we're invited to rebuild with God. We're rebuilt and we're invited to be part of God's rebuilding, part of the remaking of the world. Part of this is being freed from the feeling that we don't have any role in all this. That never crossed Tamar's mind that, that she w would just fall back into despair and not do anything. 
It frees us from the feeling that the cards have already been dealt and we don't have any capacity to affect any change. That God will do what God will do and that people, are ne people never really change. It frees us from all of that. If Tamar's story tells us anything, it's that joining in God's adventure and saying yes, even in the most incomplete and imperfect ways, can be a vehicle for Christ's arrival. It's through Tamar's actions, and then years and years and years and other stories and other people and their actions that Christ arrives, that, that Advent comes. <laughs> Consider this week at home how you might join in this adventure in saying yes to Christ by acting with courage and by acting with creativity in your relationships with your spouse, with your kids. Do something surprising and out of character, like just this week. Make that part of your Advent discipline. Just do something that you wouldn't normally do to be a part of what God's doing, to be a part of this adventure. Ask a question that you're not used to asking. And, and be present to someone in a way that you're not used to being present. Like, the, this is so, so frustrating for us um, in, in marriages because... We, we, uh, we get so stuck on the things that we think we know about someone that we, we lose creativity and we lose adventure. <laughs> we, 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 would, we would act creative, uh, creatively um, with total strangers who we're trying to figure out, um, but we're going to keep doing the same thing that gets the same result with our spouse, right? So be, a part of, be adventurous this week and say yes this week at home. Do that also with your kids. Consider what this might look like at work or at school this week. How God's mission and his vision for renewal might subvert your plans and your righteousness. Like that, that means when you're with coworkers or, when, or other students, that, that, that means you're not the righteous one in the room. Like It's been said like you should always um, try to not be the smartest person in the room, right? Like, that's how, that's how you know you're, you're seeking um, to learn and to understand is that you either aren't or you never feel like the smartest person in the room because you can pull stuff out of people. What if, what if as Christ followers we never sought to be the most righteous person in the room? Like in every room that we're in, we, we, had this, we were open to this Judah-like revelation that their righteousness far exceeds my own. That instead of having this narrow, Judah-like, closed-down imagination for hope and healing and hospitality, that, that we had that imagination that that was already happening and that God was already working in the lives of our coworkers and in, in the lives even of strangers. Think about what it might look like to live with this sort of grace and freedom around your unbelieving neighbors. That you might witness to the coming kingdom by embodying this coming king. By that, that we might bear like Tamar in our very bodies this kind of sacrifice and this risk of living our lives every day wholly for others. Like it might not work and that's okay and that's, that's kind of one of the morals of Tamar's story is that it probably wasn't going to work, but then it worked. <laughs> and she was praised for it. What if we had that sort of risk and almost recklessness 
around our neighbors, that they might actually see Christ in us through the way we're living. Will you guys pray with me? Lord, I don't really know how to end there because it, it just feels like more beginning and, and like we just need to keep coming up with more scenarios about how uh, to join in your adventure and to say yes to what you're doing. Uh, Lord, let, let this Tamar story in this first week of Advent be um, just a spark. Um, make our hearts and imaginations kindling that that spark might turn into a flame and that we might be strangely warmed by um, encountering you. Uh, Lord, uh, help us be um, risky and abandoned to what you might do in our lives, what you might call us to. And, and Lord, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're calling us to much more than, than simple routine things done well with great love. Help us do those. Give us discipline. Give us grace. Help us hope well in this coming week. And we might pack all of our hopes and desires and plans into Jesus. And we might build on that foundation. And we might abandon those lesser hopes that don't lead anywhere. And above all, Lord, we, we thank you and we trust that you're with us. We, we pray that you be with us as you've been with us with your son, as you promised to continue to be with us to the end of the age with your spirit. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.